Hello everyone, welcome to the second to last Radio Cachimbona episode of season two. This is a special episode where I broke down the Sinetting Smith oral arguments with fellow deportation defense attorney Jehan Lainer. And also for the patrons only, I also broke down the SCOTUS opinion that was authored by RBG on May 7th. But that being said, this second overview of the oral arguments is a really cogent summary of what was at stake in the case and how it seemed the justices were leaning. If you want to find out more about the decision, my opinion on it, and my opinion about white feminist hero RBG, you can become a patron. Other ways to support are writing an Apple podcast review and following at Radio Cachimbona on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and participating in the conversations about the content in the episodes there. Hope you all enjoy this episode. everyone. I'm very excited today to have Jehan back on the podcast to talk about the U.S. versus Snedding Smith arguments that happened at the Supreme Court. We recorded our episode before those happened, and there's been a lot of life occurrences that have happened since then, yeah. but we're here updating on the oral arguments in case you didn't get a chance to listen to them. Because we probably wouldn't have listened to them if it hadn't been for this recording, so we completely understand. <laughs> Jehan, how are you? And what have you done this week for self-care? Thanks for welcoming me back, Yvette. I'm happy to be back. Yes, self-care was pretty much this whole week because I was actually a little bit sick. So oh, for, yeah. those who, for those of you who are listening to this much later than when it comes out, we're in the middle of social distancing, social distancing for COVID-19. So... It was a lot of, you know, vitamin C, <laughs> vapor rub, <laughs> tea. Yeah. So. And staying home. Staying home. I stayed home. I did my part for the community. <laughs> it's just really weird, like, looking at people's Instagram stories, because there's some people who are really staying home, and then there's some people who are like, woo, I'm at the club. Yeah. it's I'm, it's, I'm going to brunch. Mm-hmm. I mean, I could, I could go into this because obviously since I was at home, I had more time to really obsess over the news. <laughs> Did you read but, every article? <laughs> yeah, and I'm pretty up to date. Just really want to give a plug out to people who are around my age, like, you know, 20s and 30s to really stay home because the data from South Korea looks like we get it more and look asymptomatic. Although there are people that died and had like really bad organ damage, even if they stayed alive. Um, oh my God. Yeah, so like, but just the fact that I think the fact that you can be a carrier and not really know it to try to keep other people in your community safe by staying home. So I think it's out here in the U.S. and we just don't know how far it's gone. So, yeah, I'm like definitely staying home because I visited Florence Prison this week (laughs) and ADC. Well, the Parsons lawsuit is literally suing ADC for their subpar medical and mental health care. And they truly treat prison as this profit-making mechanism. Right, right. Yeah, so they charge people for soap. And so some people, 
Like, soap shouldn't be something it should be rationed during this time. No. And given that I was in that environment, I was like, and that, like, I have a pretty strong immune system. Mm-hmm. Like, I could definitely be a carrier. Right. And not really know it. Mm-hmm. And Joseph, my partner, was sick. And a friend who visited was sick. So, yeah, I haven't left the house since Friday morning. Good job. I'm proud of you. Yeah, no, it's it's actually ridiculous what's going on in Ice Custody. Like, they're still yeah. asking older adult mm-hmm. I, I saw I don't think you probably shared it out too but did you see when they arrested the man at the hospital he wasn't at the hospital I shared COVID. it but I didn't see that yeah yeah he wasn't or, there for I, that I don't know if you're talking about the man was initially arrested at the courthouse had a panic attack went to the hospital and ice followed him there yeah that's what I'm talking about. I don't know if you're talking about that one or if there's another mm-hmm. thing but no but I'm just saying that, that ice is being really cruel the immigration courts are still open <laughs> Whereas most courts have shut down by now. So, mm-hmm. it's, it, yeah, it's not good. Yeah. Supposedly in Arizona, uh, 1325 prosecutions have stopped unless you have some type of criminal history. And then in New Mexico, 1325 and 1326 prosecutions have stopped. Hmm. It's good. <laughs> that is. But that's mostly because it's in federal court, I think. So. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait, are state courts closing as well? Yeah, I've heard most of the most of the folks I know. Well, civil courts. I'm actually not sure about criminal courts. Okay. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm okay. I mean, I don't know. I feel like I'm I'm pretty well equipped to be at home because I actually love staying at home. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> like, we have all the best snacks right now. And just been watching a lot of TV. And it's given me an opportunity to just work on the podcast. That's great. Yeah. That's great. (laughs) I'm I'm actually an extrovert, so it's a little hard. But And I also failed at buying snacks. I bought, like, healthy food. And then I'm like, why didn't I get chips? (laughs) But, but yeah. But Yeah, you got to have a mix. It's okay. It's okay. Yeah. Like, we got fruits and vegetables, but then we also got chips and salsa and, like, these really good, like, Chex Mix and these, bar- like, these are not Gardettos, but, like, mm. the garlic chips. They're the best part of the Gardettos. <laughs> those are, no, those look really and, good. <sighs> yeah, well, I have all these things because Joseph was kind of, like, panic buying. Mm-hmm. So I think it reminded him of living through Katrina. Mm-hmm. So we bought hella shit. We have hella shit. <laughs> Our pantry yeah. now. So, we're just really like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We just we really like don't even need to leave, so I just haven't left. Oh, that's good. I also heard a joke because you know how people are talking about there's going to be a baby boom after this. Another, oh, yeah. people are like, it's 2020, it's not going to be a baby boom. We're all just going to have our own podcast soon. So, <laughs> 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 I thought it was funny that you said you worked on the podcast, but I'm actually really happy that you get to do that because you do a lot of work for it and it's it's not your you have a full-time job aside from that so I know I know it's actually best to be able to work from home so that when I have free time I can just do openly do podcast stuff instead of like sitting at my desk pretending that I'm doing something no I agree I agree it gives you like discipline too yeah 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 or I don't know I know it's difficult for people who aren't self-motivated but for whatever perverse reason I'm incredibly self-motivated so (laughs) I just like being in my house with Mocha and Joseph love it I don't think I said what my self-care was this week. Oh, yeah. Please tell us. Ooh. Well, I don't know if it's really self-care. <laughs> I was about to be like, oh, my God, I bought myself a big bag of, a family-sized bag of Swedish fish. <laughs> Not quite sure. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. 
Hmm. Hmm. Oh my god. See if I have to like. Well, oh, I've I've stuck. I've <laughs> I've stuck to my meditation. Oh, good. Yeah. Nice. For the past few days since I have now that I've been home. That's good. I love that. Yeah. Okay. Yes. See, I was like, oh my god, am I this bad at self care? But I'm not. See, I have <laughs> things built in so well that I, I forget that I do them. <laughs> yeah, my my self care was being normal and taking care of myself. <laughs> I know. Honestly, yeah. Like I was gonna say, also just like actually staying home, I think is really good for me because yeah, I just never slow down. It's kind of like a forced slow down. So mm-hmm. it's beneficial. Getting into the oral arguments, Eric Fain argued for the government. He was he's the assistant or AU an assistant, yeah, U.S. Solicitor General, and he started out by arguing that the opposing side couldn't pinpoint any prosecutions that had occurred that prosecuted activity that was protected by the First Amendment. But an important principle of First Amendment protections is that a statute, even if it's not utilized or prosecuted in a particular way, can still be deemed unconstitutional, even if it chills speech, because we care about free speech that much that even if there is the potential, if there's a realistic possibility that it will be prosecuted in that way, and if we the public know th- knows this and it has the potential to chill speech, then we can just say that it's unconstitutional. Right. Mm -hmm. In the respondent's brief, they said the very reason that overbroad laws are subject to facial attack is to remedy the chilling effect resulting from keeping such laws on the books. Yes. And the respondents in this case were Sinanik Smith, so she's the woman that was just defrauding immigrants by saying that they had legal relief when they did it. Mm-hmm. But we're on her side here because we're afraid that the government is going to use this type of prosecution to go after immigration attorneys or other people that provide services to undocumented immigrants. Yeah. And it really is about the criminalization of speech, which should be alarming to anybody who's scared of government overreach, because even in this particular case with this woman who's not a sympathetic respondent, mm-hmm. she was criminalized for speech also, because the the thing that she was prosecuted for was mailing her retainer, where she said that like she wouldn't that she wouldn't defraud her clients or that she wouldn't make up legal relief where there wasn't any. And and that was how she was convicted of mail fraud and of this encouraging and inducing. Mm -hmm. So it's, this is about speech. Yeah. So, and then at some point we can get to that. I know you're still kind of giving the intro, but at some point her way that the Supreme court, there was a lot in here that made me cautiously optimistic about what the Supreme court is going to do. At the, there was one question from the Supreme Court about the mail fraud and like speech. Exactly what Yvette said that this is about speech because the her attorney ended up saying, well, if that's the way you're going to try to fix this statute, which he doesn't think the court actually has the power to do, but yeah. like, if you're going to fix the statute like that, then my client will will not be convicted under the statute. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it is and, really about speech, like Yvette said. Yeah, and the respondent's attorney went on to say that. 
the that the Supreme Court can't fix the statute by saying, oh, well, this is just like solicitation, which is already a crime, or like aiding and abetting, which is already a crime. Mm-hmm. Because if the he argued that if the Congress really intended that, then it would have just said those words because those are the longstanding words that you use when you're trying to criminalize that conduct. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So what Yvette's getting to here is what we were kind of alluding to about the government or the Supreme Court said, oh, maybe we can fix this statute. And I think it's Kagan who kind of summarized at the end, we don't like to rule statutes are unconstitutional. We don't like to get rid of statutes. We try to Mm -hmm. interpret them in a way that makes them permissible. However, Mm -hmm. there's rules about how far you can go with interpretation and at what point you are usurping Congress's power, which is to write laws. So if if the so basically the respondent's attorney was like, well, if you try to save this statute by reading in aiding and abetting and solicitation, first of all, that's going a bridge too far. Because like Yvette mm-hmm. said, Congress has known how to write those words for a long time. And yeah, the, the government the government's attorney, he was saying he was saying like, well, this is historical. Predecessors to the statute we're arguing about have been around since the 1800s. But like mm-hmm. going back to the 1800s, they knew how to say aiding and abetting. So mm-hmm. um, they could have put that in if they wanted to. So first of all, the respondent's attorney is saying that you're definitely rewriting if you get into that ter- territory. Mm-hmm. And the second problem with that, well, there was a lot of problems with doing this, actually. But another <laughs> problem yeah. that the respondent's attorney brought up is that even if you did put in this aiding and abetting language, you're still writing in aiding and abetting about something that isn't a crime, but you're giving penalties. And so Mm -hmm. like, like Yvette and I had talked about before being in this country undocumented. So remaining in the country undocumented isn't a crime. And so even trying to fix it in this way, it seems, it seems like you're, you're still doing something that is really unusual by punishing with criminal activity, aiding and abetting something that isn't a crime. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that the respondents attorney did a really good job of pointing that out of like why the statute can't be rewritten by being like, okay, well, like, let's say theoretically you are going to write it to be limited to solicitation or aiding and abetting. Then you'd also have to qualify that the only conduct, like you can only be accused of solicitation if the conduct that you're soliciting is itself criminal. Yeah. And then whatever justice he was talking to was like, well, oh, like, you really think that we could we could interpret the statute that way? And he's like, no, that's why I'm saying that, like, you're basically rewriting the statute if you yeah. do that. But, like, I'm telling you that if you do that, that's what you're going to need to do. Yeah, it's not just, it's not going to be simple as, like, oh, we read it in aiding and abetting, which isn't a, that's another thing. So this is kind of very legally nerdy, but when you're reading a statute. And this whole thing is like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I get real into it. When you read a statute, there's rules about how you can read it. And the reason why they, and these rules are called rules of statutory construction. So it's like, how are you interpreting the statute? And there's only certain ways you can interpret it. And this is kind of to put judges so that judges are all using the same system and judges aren't going like way out of their way to come up with understandings that other courts aren't going to have because we're a big country. There's different courts Mm -hmm. of judges. We kind of want everybody to be using the same tools to look at a statute. And there's no tool. Once you get down those tools and you can't read the statute any other way than the way it's written, you're supposed to mm-hmm. analyze it constitutionally. And so that's what mm-hmm. the response lawyer is saying. Like, there's no tool that would let you just put in aiding and abetting here randomly. Mm-hmm. And so you just have to find mm-hmm. this statute unconstitutional. 
Yeah. And also, going back to the point I made earlier, the government conceded that there actually can be some unconstitutional prosecutions under the statute as it's worded. Yeah. Like, John Roberts was kind of really going in on on the government about that, and they eventually just had to concede that, yeah, that's true, that there could be unconstitutional prosecutions under the statute. And that, for me, it's kind of like, okay, well, it's case closed. Like, yeah, there's a realistic possibility. Yeah, he, he definitely said that. He said that he could see this happening um, in certain circumstances. And I, and I don't know why the argument kept going on for 40 minutes after that, but (laughs) I know that happened really early on. Yeah. And like, but he's, he was really bullshitting. Like he was saying that the ninth circuit example of the grandmother encouraging her grandchild couldn't be prosecuted under the statute. And he was saying that it covers a more narrow subset of solicitation that requires substantial participation in quote, illegal activity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And so and the judges did get into that with the respondents attorney more. So they were talking to him a little bit more about, well, can we fix it by by tying in this illegal activity piece? Like we said, he was doing a really good job at pointing out why you couldn't do that. I was a little disappointed in Justice Breyer because he was like, well, couldn't. Yeah. We? Yeah. So he was like really trying to find a way to rewrite the statute. And he was like, mm-hmm. so we can put in the solicitation, aiding and abetting piece. And then we'd have to put in stuff about about illegal activity being entering this country illegally. And then Mark Fleming was like, no, it would have to be multiple times. And he was still talking about how people's status can still be regularized after that. So people can become legal after doing all of after entering the country illegally. And so mm-hmm. and so I was disappointed in Briar, like still trying to go down that road and still trying to figure out how they could do this. And it just goes back to the main point that just being in this country undocumented isn't a crime. And mm-hmm. no, almost no matter what you've done, there's still different ways to regularize your status. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's kind of impossible to draw this line about illegal activity that they were trying to draw. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So Ruth Bader Ginsburg asked, what about the district court in Massachusetts? There was an instance where the statute was used to encroach on First Amendment rights. So actually, this is like already documented as having occurred. Mm -hmm. And uh, the government in that case was advocating that the provision could be utilized to prosecute the conduct of professionals who work with migrants like attorneys. I think this is something that you brought up last time that we recorded that this isn't some wild left-wing conspiracy. Like, actually, the government itself has brought up that immigration attorneys could theoretically be prosecuted under this provision. Yeah, and thank you for bringing this part up, especially. So So I think I was talking last time in district court under this case in Seneneg. The lawyers in that case actually refused to, to say that they wouldn't apply the statute to attorneys. So... Mm-hmm. So this time in front of the Supreme Court was actually the first time that that the government said we wouldn't use it against attorneys who and they qualified it. So they said mm-hmm. who weren't committing fraud. So like mm-hmm. it still gives the government like kind of a, who weren't who weren't helping somebody, encouraging somebody to do illegal activity. So it still leaves open like what does the government consider illegal activity because they've been mm-hmm. broadening the restrictions against asylum lately against immigration mm-hmm. law lately so like what would be considered legal activity would illegal activity be like if i challenge this law that the government just put in place <laughs> so you yeah. know 
it's very broad, but it was the first time they, they kind of said they wouldn't go after attorneys who weren't doing something illegal again and putting illegal in quotes just because we don't know what mm-hmm. that is yet, um, the way that the government understands illegal in the immigration context. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so then the respondent's lawyer came in and he was like, I'm really astonished. This is kind of the first time they've ever, in, they haven't done this in their briefing. They didn't do this in the lower mm-hmm. courts below. This is the first time they've put these limitations on it. So I like that he pointed that out. And then just what you were saying, um, Ginsburg is bringing up this case where, uh, where, where, like you said, a woman hired a housekeeper mm-hmm. and told the housekeeper, basically kind of told her, like, there's a way for you to get status here. And so, like, she gave her... I think it might have been even, like, more vague than that. Wasn't it just... Wasn't she actually just encouraging her to stay? Like, wasn't she, like... Or I think it was, like, she said, if you if you leave the country, it'll be hard to get back in. Something like that? Yes. Yeah. So she gave her advice. She said, um, if you stay here, they won't let you back in. Um, which... That's... Which I think I wanted to point out, because it's, like... That's actually good advice. <laughs> yeah. It, well, also, it's it's kind of, like... I don't know, cause the, the mens rea requirement came up mm-hmm. and that is relevant here because it's like, I don't, what, was she even really thinking about it that way? That she was like, oh, I'm furthering this person's unauthorized presence. No, yeah. Or is she then, just like stating an observation like, you know, our border's so militarized. Like mm-hmm. if you left, it'd probably be really hard for you to come back. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like. I think people need to realize how this has already been prosecuted, how scary this is. And even what you're saying, yeah. And even what you're saying about like, oh, the, for the first time the government limited the prosecuting of attorneys, the potential prosecuting of attorneys under this by saying that they would only prosecute attorneys who commit fraud. Well, just like the way that fraud is described in the immigration context is so broad that like, like trust a lot could be prosecuted if that's what, if that's mm-hmm. what the underlying activity is going to be described as, especially now with denaturalization efforts, like a lot of those are, you know, quote, the quote unquote fraud that they point out. There's that case of the Palestinian woman who went up to the Supreme Court and had her asylum stripped away because they said that she had lied on her asylum application when they like they asked about whether her, like if she had had any involvement if she'd been arrested or like had any criminal convictions or been charged criminally. And she mm-hmm. said no, because, and they were like, Oh, well you lied, but she had been the crime that she was charged with or convicted of was the one that she had used as a basis for her political asylum. Like, so Oh yeah. Like I talked about this. It wasn't like a secret. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then like, they were like, Oh yeah, it's okay. Like it's, it was okay for your citizenship to be stripped. So this is very scary. Oh, that happens a lot. Or like the fraud was something that you didn't do. Maybe your parents did and you didn't know. It's just, yeah. <laughs> we don't have to get into like that Like the one, border patrol. <laughs> yeah, I know. But I also know about, no, another, I know about another case where it was a Yemeni man. And, and back to something that I think Yvette probably talks about a lot, but the immigration laws are constantly in flux. So oh, yeah. this, yeah. sorry, I know we're on a big tangent and I will go back to the, to the housekeeper. No, but uh, but um, so this Yemeni man, he and his siblings, they had a U.S. citizen father, but citizenship doesn't pass through as easily from the father if you're not all living in the U.S. So there's different ways that citizenship passes down. So he and his siblings, their father, they're in Yemen, and his father is applying for their green card. And so he's applying for their green card. And when this man was born, the laws of how your U.S. citizen father could get your green card were slightly different than when his siblings were born. 
but more of his siblings were born under the new law than he was. So this visa person, the, the person at the U.S. consulate who's going through to do their visa applications, is applying the current law that applies to, like, I'm making up the sibling number because I don't remember, but it applies to four out of the five siblings, not him. Mm-hmm. And it just doesn't apply to him because he was born, like, seven years earlier or something. Mm-hmm. So anyways, he gets his green card, comes to the U.S., lives out his life, you know, studies here, does everything, becomes a citizen, citizen for a long time, decades, and then... I think he's actually applying for somebody else is where this gets pinged again. And after 9-11, the U.S. government is like super scrutinizing people from the MEMSA population in any type of um, application, like the disparate treatment there and like the discrimination, racism, xenophobia, Islamophobia is real. And Mm -hmm. so they like go through these applications with a fine tooth comb. And so like he's applying for somebody else. But they go through his, not his, just his naturalization, but they go through his green card application when he's a little kid and, like, determine that, oh, they used the wrong laws. So it was the U.S. government's own fault. <laughs> but but he gets stripped of citizenship and he get and, like, there's a lot of, like, he has a lot of support from, like, Congress folks and stuff like that. But they, so far that I know they haven't gotten an agreement from the U.S. government to reinstate him. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's so awful. Yeah, I think that went up at least. I don't think it, I'm not sure if it went up to the Supreme Court or not, but I know it went up to the Second Circuit for sure. Wow, wow, wow. So going back to to the mens rea requirement that Yvette was talking about in the housekeeper situation, excuse me. Maybe we should say what mens rea is. I was just about to define it, yeah. <laughs> so Yvette you've taken the bar more recently than me so if I get this wrong you can go in but mens rea is the intent in your head that is required mm-hmm. for a criminal act so there are some acts where you don't need any mens rea requirement and a lot of these are when you statutory crimes or like statutory rape like if you do it you mm-hmm. it didn't it doesn't matter what you thought it doesn't matter mm-hmm. if you thought this person was older you did it mm-hmm. and that's that's the same as like a DUI you it doesn't matter what you were thinking. You like were drunk and you were in the car. So, mm-hmm. so those don't really have this mens. It's called those are like more general intent crimes. And then there's like crimes that have specific mens rea intent. So, for example, I'm just gonna do it. It's murder. Um, you have to for it not to be manslaughter or like a lesser crime. You had to have intended this to kill somebody or like an, a harm that you could have killed, like could have caused um, great bodily injury, depending on your state. And so like that, that, that would be a mens rea in that crime. So here, the government before and all of the lower courts had argued that this statute about encouraging, encouraging people to remain here unlawfully, they were arguing that there was no mens rea requirement. <laughs> so, so the, so the mm-hmm. jury didn't, didn't analyze that when they convicted her of this crime. Here, for the first time before the Supreme Court, the government's lawyer said that there is a mens rea requirement. So he's, mm-hmm. the mens rea being that that you are going to only only violate the statute if you cross into the line of criminal solicitation. So that and mm-hmm. solicitation does require mens rea because you have to know that you're asking somebody to do something that's illegal, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's the first time that they brought this up. So the respondent's lawyer was saying like, well, if that's the case, my my client still should be shouldn't be convicted under this because that that was not the jury instruction. <laughs> yeah or like, Honest, like at yeah. the very least this needs to be remanded like you can't decide this right now yeah so yeah the, the respondent's attorney was like if you're going to add all these qualifications there's no way the supreme court can touch this right now because there wasn't an issue that was so he i really like this that he pointed out all the procedure 
But he was like, mm-hmm. if that, yeah. this issue needs to go back before the lower courts and come back up to you if, if, if they're arguing something completely different than they've been arguing. And yes, sir. I was like really reminded it was a criminal proceeding. I was like, oh, yeah, you're right. There are all these procedural things that make it so that this wasn't fair and just needs to go back down to district court again. <laughs> yeah. Have yeah. it out again. And, and I really didn't. I don't think that the way that the government's attorney was answering the questions about when you can apply this to an immigration lawyer or any lawyer, I don't think they were satisfactory because he said the hypothetical example about this being applied to a lawyer only if the actions of the lawyer cross into the line of criminal complicity or solicitation. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so he keeps trying to draw this line, and I'm like, but then you have to go down and, and analyze the underlying conduct, and I think that's I think that's a big opening that we're still leaving the government, and I think that's really hard to, to say in the immigration context what is a criminal complicity or solicitation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think it's really hard to draw the line of, like, what, what conduct... At, like, it's just hard to draw that line of conduct that isn't complicit in, quote-unquote, furthering someone's unauthorized stay, and then um, conduct that is. Like, it's just kind of the examples that we were talking about last time that we recorded. Like, it, like the person who sells bread to the undocumented person or... Or the person, you know, more more realistically, like the doctor that provides life-saving care to the yeah. undocumented person, or yeah. the charity that gives food to that undocumented one was good. people. And that was that was Kavanaugh, who was like, "What about charities that are specific for undocumented folks? Like, what about that?" And and that's why I got cautiously optimistic because I think the majority of justices were like pointing out that this statute's kind of overbroad. And I think like last time we were talking about on the podcast. If people are, for some reason, worried about like scrupulous immigration attorneys or attorneys doing things like that to take advantage of people, there's other statutes that cover that criminally. And mm-hmm. like this statute is the only difference with this statute is it's it is talking about speech. It's using the word encouraged. So this is the mm-hmm. statute that kind of lets the government do whatever they want versus other statutes that actually talk about real conduct, real furtherance of smuggling and things like that. Mm-hmm. And I just think we really need to be really suspicious of the Trump administration's intentions with this. Like, we already know that there's a watch list that, you know, of 100%. organizations at the border of, you know, they're keeping watch lists of people who are giving legal advice at the border. And it's kind of like, you know, how could we not think that those are exactly the people that the Trump administration has in mind when it's talking about this provision? Yeah, and Sotomayor, I think she brought this up too. Mm-hmm. I didn't I didn't read this amicus brief, but Amnesty International filed a brief that talked about DHS admitting there's a watch list at the border and that there is advice given at the border because um, people are about to go into interviews with border patrol agents. And mm-hmm. so it's, it's very normal for interviews. Yeah, it's very normal for Im- for immigration attorneys or to give what, the, what are known as know your rights presentations. But citizens mm-hmm. get these all the time too. And so a know your rights might be a Miranda warning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so we'll give you a know your rights that's like, if you get arrested, you have the right to remain silent. You have the right to call an attorney. You should do this. And like, if, if, if the police do X, Y, and Z to you, that's illegal. Remember this. So we do the same thing for folks that are at the border. We give them okay, know your rights presentations. Like, this is what you should expect. Mm-hmm. This is what will happen in the screening interview. You know, you might be in this like really cold place for a while. Mm-hmm. And like this, if this happens to you, that's not right. That's illegal. Mm-hmm. So, so mm-hmm. it's like a normal thing. So Sotomayor was pointing out that that these individuals, the individuals that give Know Your Rights presentations are being watched at the border. And so couldn't you be prosecuted 
couldn't these folks be prosecuted too? Because Mm -hmm. there, it's not a legal task for asylum at the border, but the U.S. government is starting to treat it like it is. Um, Mm -hmm. And so couldn't we prosecute folks Mm -hmm. under this? Yeah. Yeah. I thought generally Sotomayor did a good job, but what I didn't like is that she used the phrase illegal aliens. She kept using the phrase alien. Yeah, I know. I didn't like that either. That stuck out to me. I wonder if it's just because these laws of the United States are written with this terrible language. Um, And so she's using it. But but yeah, I agree. That stuck out to me. It's just still so shocking to hear. It is, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, I just think that we should normalize it just because everybody else in the profession normalizes yeah. it. And, like, yeah. I always thought it was so weird when my administrative law professor would use the term. I was like, yeah. bro, you're talking about my parents. Like, this is so weird. You're, they're not aliens. Like, this is really bizarre. Yeah, and we go, and, I mean, not to, I'm not trying to excuse Sotomayor for using the term because even in my briefs, my briefs, so what I write to federal court or what I write to immigration court, I just change the statute in brackets. I put non-citizen when I have to quote the statute. So it's not impossible to like say this and everyone know what you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we've been talking a lot about solicitation and the respondent's attorney pointed out that the Supreme Court actually hasn't defined exactly what solicitation is, which is why this specific issue shouldn't even be decided yet because the Supreme Court hasn't even addressed at what point speech becomes criminal. Like that precise line hasn't right. been delineated yet. And it's really, I think we see why it's really complicated to try and do that. Right. No, I agree. Yeah. And I have nothing much to add to that because I totally agree that they, that's going to be a real problem, especially in the context where being in this country undocumented isn't a crime and mm-hmm. um, where status can become regularized. And so like advice that I give to my clients might be like very long term. So it might be mm-hmm. like, especially for, I'm thinking in yeah. about a U visa client that might be here without status. Mm-hmm. It's taking uh, around 10 years to get a U visa to get legal status. So, mm-hmm. so like I'm giving this person advice and they will be able to regularize their status in 10 years. But, but technically mm-hmm. like I'm helping, you know, I'm, they're going to be here and documented for a while trying to help them remain in the U S yeah, yeah. With status. Right. Mm-hmm. Briar points this out. Oh, well, also, sorry, I just want to also add that. So, something that's really common that immigration attorneys do is that they give advice based on elections. Oh, right. Right? Totally. Like, yeah. there's people that are like, hmm, you know, maybe we should. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, when exactly should we renew? Should we renew now? Which we have the option of doing. Or should we wait until like a month before your status expires? Because at that point, it'll be past November. And who knows? Maybe we'll have a different administration. Maybe there'll be different types of legal relief. We've seen under this administration how much immigration policy can change under an executive. So, yeah. And but then then again, it's like that's a type of speculation that then could be interpreted as encouraging somebody to stay unlawfully. No. Yeah, exactly. And that I think is a good attorney is analyzing all the factors that are going on. And that's just that. I don't think that anybody should think like, Oh, Oh, it's shady if an attorney is doing that. And like, I just want to point out like people in who are in corporations are doing the same thing. And, And so, and so like, and 
I don't think that. So anyways, a good attorney will be doing this. And and yeah, we do it all the time. For example, like Yvette was saying, an executive. So the INA is written by Congress. The Immigration and Nationality Act is written by Congress. But obviously, when Congress writes any law, they're not thinking about all the different ways that it's going to be carried out, executed, implemented, how people are going like, to interpret certain parts of it. And so that gives so much leeway to the executive branch, which is the president. So we know the president's Trump and under the president, which is actually still something that I think is wild, goes the executive, goes the Department of Justice. So y'all know William Barr, but William Barr is in charge of the executive office of immigration review. So that's all the immigration judges. So we've got Trump basically in charge of all the immigration judges. Mm-hmm. And then he's still in, char- in charge of the. They're not independent. Yeah, exactly. And so this is another movement is trying to get these independent to be independent courts. And then on the side, you also have. Yes. Yeah. Objective courts. Yeah. Then on the side, you also have the Department of Homeland Security, which right now has been headed up by different acting secretaries, which allows them to actually avoid a lot, a lot of what am I trying to say? A lot of accountability. It, yeah. Um, yeah. 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 I yeah. So, so anyways, but you have like, and those are basically, it's all immigration laws are under these two branches. And so they've been interpreting things in a very draconian way. They've been taking away a lot of legal protections. Mm-hmm. And so I think that at any time when I have like somebody that might is eligible for a form of relief, so they're definitely eligible, but I know now USCIS has flipped their interpretation. So USCIS is the, agency that takes care of most applications and they're under the Department of Homeland Security. They take affirmative applications. Affirmative applications, yeah. And some applications, even when somebody is in immigration proceedings, but whatever. (laughs) So, so, like what? Oh, like somebody could be before an immigration judge and also before USCIS. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, it just depends. But, but they've changed their interpretation. Like they're rejecting applications where if you didn't mark NA in every single box. So, oh yeah, it's so yeah. absurd. And if you get, and now this didn't mm-hmm. used to happen, but now if you like get your application denied, so you, even if you get your application denied, you can still reapply for different things. And now they're doing it where if you get denied, a lot of times you're going straight into immigration court proceedings. Mm-hmm. So that didn't used to happen. So anyways, this is all to say. As an attorney, knowing that USCIS is doing these type of things where someone isn't in proceedings, but they're eligible for an affirmative form of relief. So maybe they were a trafficking victim, maybe they were a U visa, so they were a victim of crime, or maybe they can apply through a green card, through a family member, anything. Now I'm like analyzing, it's a little risky right now for you to apply just because Mm -hmm. you aren't Mm -hmm. in proceedings right now. And if they deny it for one of these not great reasons, <laughs> then you might end up in immigration proceedings. And obviously it's the client's choice. And I always give them the choice, the risk and everything. Yeah. But yeah, it's just it's just one thing that you say. If it's not an urgent need for this person, maybe we do wait until the next election for you to apply. And mm-hmm. um, if it is an urgent need, that's different. But yeah. Yeah. Breyer brings up that residing in the U.S. is not a crime, and so he questions the government attorney of how you can be guilty of solicitation if you're encouraging someone to reside in the United States. And uh, he asks, what if we said the statute under constitutional pressure is limited to instances of solicitation of a crime? Does the government accept that? And the government was like, well, we prefer your proposed limitation as compared to the Ninth Circuit deeming the statute unconstitutional on its face. Mm-hmm. So that's why I wanted to ask why you're optimistic, because I kind of got the sense that Breyer might rule with the conservatives. But you felt like Kavanaugh might also rule with 
the liberals. Well, so 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 just going to the issue. The issue is: is this statute unconstitutional? And yeah. on its face, and it kind of seems every question that the judges are asking is pretty much accepting that it is unconstitutional the way it's written now. Mm-hmm. And almost, I think almost every justice, except for Alito, so whatever. But <laughs> but like Kavanaugh. But even if they limit it, isn't we've been talking about how even if they try and limit it, and I feel like yeah. the mm-hmm. yeah, if the response attorney made a good point about how even if you try and limit it to criminal solicitation or aiding and abetting of a crime, it's still I think it's still pretty murky. Yeah, yeah, murky, problematic. But I think like the first issue that came up is like, is this unconstitutional on its face? I'm hearing Roberts, I'm hearing Gorsuch, I'm hearing Kavanaugh, I'm hearing definitely, obviously, Ginsburg and Sotomayor and Breyer, and her name Kagan, too. They're all kind of accepting that there's some constitutional problems here and already mm-hmm. being like, oh, yeah, the way this is written is not good. There needs to be some changes. So I think on the first issue, that's why I'm cautiously optimistic. I'm like, mm-hmm. none of them are just going to be like, it sounds like to me none of these justices except for Alito are, are going to go out and say this statute is completely fine the way it is. So I think that, yeah. was, that was what is making me optimistic. And then I, I don't know enough to know what they're going to do next. It seems to me very, even though I know, like Kagan said, they do not like to strike down statutes. It seems to me very hard to rewrite it themselves. I think they're going to have to send it back with a lot of questions. Robert's and I think Roberts is one that joked about it, about being like, can we even do that? Don't we need to get that signed off by Congress and approved by the president? So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I think like there's an acknowledgement that it is a lot for the Supreme Court to suddenly add in these mm-hmm. extra limitations. Yeah. So if I had to guess and what makes the most sense to me, although the Supreme Court hasn't been doing what I think would be obvious, I think that they would probably have to send this back. So that's why I'm cautiously optimistic. I don't think the statute's going going to stay on the books as is basically mm. but what does your mug say oh it's a oh i didn't even do this on purpose it says fighting for immigrant justice but first let me drink my coffee oh <laughs> the california immigrant justice Alliance. oh my god <laughs> i love yeah. it <laughs> okay that's good that's good that's good yeah i i think that it is really important for this to be read as unconstitutional on its face because the government, even the government attorney's responses, I think, clarified that this does need to just be unconstitutional on its face. Because when Eric Fain was asked if speech alone can be deemed to meet the definition of encouraged, she's like, yeah. And it's just like... <laughs> yeah, and actually, let me say, I've been down on Alito, but he actually noted that if we accept what the government is now arguing right now, and save the statute by a narrow construction. Narrow construction meaning we're going to add in all these caveats that this was different than what the jury was instructed with. So Alito even seemed to be like, she she needs a new trial. So then Nick Smith would have yeah. to <laughs> need a new trial here. <laughs> yeah. Because we're like, yeah. we're redoing the statute, basically. Mm-hmm. Eric Fain was trying to say that, oh, like there are limitations to how we would prosecute it. Like first, it has to be something that the defendant wants to bring about, <laughs> like, which is really vague. And then two, something that the alien is aware of. Mm-hmm. Three, a substantial amount of participation. Yeah. And it's like, again, there's just like still, all those things are really, really vague. They're like, very vague, yeah. Especially the wants to bring about. It's like, like that's like, I think that that goes to ideology. It's like, I agree. Hmm. I, w- I totally agree. I was going to say that too. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I want you to finish first and then I'll say what I was thinking. Okay. I was thinking. 
No, I was just thinking like, um, and I'm sorry I interrupted you, but the the way that the government is is talking about this and really gunning for it, and this was something I said in the last podcast, and so this is not my legal analysis. It's just me being worried as an immigration attorney. But this law that hasn't been used a lot now has a so a very high profile right now. It just went into argument at the Supreme Court. The government is obviously defending it. So, and they were very careful about the language that they're using around immigration attorneys and advice. So I think like this law is a very high profile. They want to use it and they want to keep some of this open for what Yvette is talking about. About It just makes you worried about the murkiness, the vagueness of how this is going to be applied. Yeah, I just think we don't need to give prosecutors more tools in the age of mass incarceration. Like, why is this? Why? Yeah, especially when there's, like I said, I keep saying there's other statutes that are clearer about the conduct that I think most people would argue, would would agree. Maybe I, would, I don't put myself in here, but a lot of people might say like, oh, yeah, this is things we should punish criminally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't put yeah. myself in here, but I understand. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's statutes yeah. that, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> There's other statutes that cover what the government claims they're trying to go after is basically what I'm saying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that that also goes to why like we shouldn't just let this lay it, sit on the books and then, oh, challenge it later if it ends up being problematically applied. Yeah. No, I totally agree. And I think, like Yvette like pointed out <laughs> very early on, the government conceded that the way it's written as applied has some problems. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So that happened very early on that they conceded that. So, yeah. I think that, and that might be why the oral arguments focused on like how to save this statute because it seemed very early on everybody was kind of like, yeah, it doesn't look good the way it's written. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The gov- so another way that the government was trying to save the statute was by saying that it required the mens rea of, with knowledge of the attendant circumstances and again, this knowledge of the attendant circumstances is really vague because immigration law is constantly in flux. Mm-hmm. The attendant circumstances change based on who the executive is, based mm-hmm. on congressional decisions, based on a whole myriad set of things. And mm-hmm. it's it, it's just all the ways that the government tried to save the statute don't work. Yeah, definitely. And, and again, it would be... So they got into, so yes, everything that Yvette said, plus even if I am giving advice as an, or an immigration attorney is giving advice for somebody to stay in this country without status. And like Yvette said, that's first of all problematic just because we don't know how the law is going to change. So somebody that might not have any relief mm-hmm. now might have relief in two years. Things change like they might have a U.S. citizen relative all of a sudden. Things change. So like that, A, what Yvette is saying is problematic, that things could change. But B, it's problematic because being here undocumented still isn't a crime. So it's really rare that you would have criminal prosecution for solicitation of something that's not a crime. And the government tried to come up with some examples, and none of them that I thought were convincing, or I will admit, did I very well understand. (laughs) For example, saying that drinking under the age of 21, they were saying that solicitation for that, drinking under the age of 21, isn't a crime. I think they were trying to say that if you made a violation of drinking under the age of 21 civil, which I think in a lot of states it's actually criminal prosecution if you drink under the age of 21. But they were saying, yeah, I guess it depends on the state. Yeah, so they were saying if you're in a state where it's a civil crime, and then there is still prosec- there's still criminal prosecution for somebody that solicits them to to drink, I guess, or gives them alcohol. And I thought the respondent's attorney, so Sinanik Smith's attorney, did a good job of saying that that's 
completely not what happens in this context. They were saying that it's actually the statutes, the way that they're written, are talking about aiding and abetting a minor to drink. So it, it doesn't talk about like solicitation, conspiracy. It's more like you've taken some steps towards doing it and, and basically saying that like, the government's throwing out a hypothetical. And I don't think the government did a really good job of showing any instance where um, there is criminal prosecution for solicitation of a non-criminal activity, if that makes sense of what I'm trying to say. I don't think the government did a good job of showing that. Yeah. Well, Robert seemed to think that it, a convincing example was that you could make sex work a civil offense, engaging in sex work a civil offense, but still make the recruitment of a sex worker criminal. Yeah, I know. I, I, I also didn't love that example either. I don't know. Yeah, it just seems... Because, current, because currently sex work is criminalized. Yeah, that was it. So the, these two are all just examples. hypothetically. Yeah, all of these examples, like, they relied on kind of, like, two, two hypotheticals to get to, like, it making, <laughs> to it making sense. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, and that's kind of why the attorney just kept, for the respondent, just kept repeating that the INA doesn't mention solicitation or aiding and abetting and, you know, that even if it was going to be limiting to soliciting criminal conduct, it would still be overbroad. Mm-hmm. And pointed out, too, that nothing that the respondent did was a solicitation of a crime. Yeah, she kept saying, my client still gets off if you guys, if you guys are going to change the yeah. fact this. My client shouldn't have been prosecuted. He was yeah. like, my client was prosecuted for speech. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so very early on, I, I love when he got up, because very early on, he brought up this point. He says... So even if you do all the things to fix it, which I don't think you can do, one, yeah. but if you do do those things, my client should should not be prosecuted under this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it was speech. All that she did was tell undocumented people that there was a lawful pathway to legal permanent residency when there wasn't, when they didn't have one. Yeah, yeah. The government consistently rejected any mens rea in the case, which is that the individual knows or recklessly would disregard the documented status of an individual. But then at oral argument, it said that it would be willing to import one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> import, you brought this up earlier. Yeah. Import is also what? a keyword legally. Import. It's just a keyword legally because import also means we're talking very carefully about a statute and what is written in it. And we've been saying that they're trying to add things that are not written in it, which the judges usually cannot do. And import also means the same thing, that you're taking something that isn't written there and trying to put it in. So this is like a third or fourth thing that they're trying to import or bring into the statute. Just wanted to point out, it's also not in the statute, but continuing on. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you brought this up earlier that the attorney was really pissed and was like, it is ludicrous to bring that up at this stage. Mm -hmm. That would require a remand and a retrial at the very least. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's another way that the government was trying to save the statute all of a sudden, something that they hadn't written into their briefing. So briefing is... Sorry, I know I get, I feel like I'm getting really procedural and like, I feel like, oh, this is really unfair. No, I feel like the listeners love procedural. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but briefing is basically when both sides are writing down their arguments. And the point of briefing is so that you, it's just fairness that you tell them what you're going to argue and what your, what laws and authority, actually this happened to me the other day in federal court. <laughs> I'll tell you after, but you're, you're basically giving a heads up to the other side. Like, first of all, you want to make your argument look great. So you're like, look at all of this authority that I have, these former cases, these laws. 
I should win because I'm just telling you to do the same thing you've always done. <laughs> and then you have another side that arguing and they're putting in their laws about why you should change what you've always done, et cetera, et cetera. So, so, but you put those into your briefing. So it's really strange. And then oral argument is just supposed to be questions from judges for things that maybe you left out or weren't clear or the judge like, mm-hmm. Oh, your opponent brought up a good idea. What do you mm-hmm. think about that idea? So it's just mm-hmm. to clarify kind of the end the end of the briefing, really. Mm-hmm. And it's fun, honestly, to like have them go back and forth. I think there's a little bit of that. But but here, so this is what the respondent's attorney is pointing out. Somebody was prosecuted under a statute using the understanding that the government was arguing for like two courts down. And all of a sudden, not in their briefing to the Supreme Court, not in their reply briefing, so they get like two chances to talk about this, but all of a sudden in front of the judges when they're just supposed to be wrapping up issues, do they bring up, like, how about adding this? And how about adding in a mens rea? So, so that, mm-hmm. I think, is wild. And I think it was good that the respondent's attorney brought up. <laughs> my client needs to get, if you're going to add in all these protections, that applies to my client as well. But, yeah, so the thing I was going to tell you about that was just funny. <laughs> was I was in, we were in federal court, and the judge who is actually Justice Breyer's little brother so he's actually a judge in front of the Northern District of California, and he was our judge on this case. I don't know if I've talked about this on the podcast before, but Mm-mm. our client is a LGBT man from Chad, and Chad in 2017 mm-hmm. just made some anti-homosexuality laws, so like criminalizing homosexuality. Mm-hmm. And this client, I, I don't, I'm going to get this wrong, but he's been here maybe since, I don't remember. So he's been here for a few years, but he lost his asylum case which didn't bring up the lgbt claim because Mm -hmm. he was closeted you know he's been in a Mm -hmm. country that's pretty Mm -hmm. oppressive um and like he comes to the Mm -hmm. u.s and is like exploring a sexual identity but doesn't tell his attorney at the time because Mm -hmm. he's closeted and Mm -hmm. it's it's really hard guys to like talk about your whole life and trauma to your attorney let alone yeah well not yeah Mm -hmm. not every immigration attorney is a people person let me tell you no and like it's still hard even when i am able to like pick up on stuff and and talk to my client Mm -hmm. about it the client still has to give me permission to talk about it in front of other people and it's Mm -hmm. yeah so that's a that's hard and like you know people need therapy for these type of things these are really intense issues but anyways so so in his asylum case he he was bringing up political oppression against his actual ethnic group and then just the the political party that they supported family members were killed family members have gotten asylum in the US so this is something i know that Yvette talks about about how it's kind of random to the judge you get like one immigration judge might mm-hmm. might give someone asylum with the same facts and another one won't mm-hmm. and political asylum is actually an easier way to get asylum if I can say that or just a more yeah easier so compared to what just like other like um particular social group analysis maybe so like political oh. asylum is like one of the like oh yeah yeah or commonly accepted ways even by conservative so the quintessential case like yeah post-world war ii that specific kind of government oppression was what was contemplated when they were talking about the ideal yeah. refugee yeah, so yeah, it's an ideal case, and even kind of conservative judges will give you that. But basically, this is all to say, I don't think he should have lost his asylum case in front of the immigration judge. Um, so he lost yeah. it. He lost it, and then he appealed. He lost it, and then we filed a motion to reopen under changed country conditions because post him losing in 2014, in 2017, he now has a new claim because of his LGBT identity and the like. Great argument. Yeah, so so that's still pending. But anyways, the government supported him while this was pending. Wow. Um, 
And so, like, not that this matters, but he hasn't had any crimes or anything like that. So mm-hmm. they picked him up on a visa overstay and deported him, okay? Uh, or not a visa overstay, but they picked him up because of his uh, asylum life loss. And, and then they deported Damn. him. So we, while he was on the plane, we had filed a habeas corpus to bring him back while he was on the plane, just being like, he has something pending, don't deport him. Mm-hmm. Anyways, so Judge Breyer ended up ruling in our favor and ordered to bring him back to the U.S., which is Wait, great. that went up to the Supreme Court? No, so Judge Breyer, the little brother that's in the Northern District. Oh. So, so, yeah, sorry. Oh. It's confusing. <laughs> it's his little brother, but he's he's great. <laughs> so <Love you>, Breyer. <laughs> yeah, so, so he orders them to bring him back. Actually, another um, had ordered this emergency TRO for us, and then Judge Breyer had the case fully. And so the government... Part of bringing him back includes liaising with the government of Chad a little bit, liaising with the Department of State. And so the so the government, the AUSA attorney, the assistant U.S. attorney for the Northern District was arguing on behalf of ICE. ICE's attorneys were saying that they that the judge cannot order ICE to talk to other agencies or talk to other governments. And so he's saying, and then so Judge Breyer was like, where's your authority that states that ICE, ICE can't talk to other governments? It seems like you guys do that a lot. And so, and she said, I don't have any authority to cite. And then Judge Breyer was like, okay, well, do you have any personal, she said, I don't have any, she was like, I don't have any professional authority to cite. And he was like, well, do you have any personal authority to cite? It was like really hard not to laugh in court, but yeah, so no authority. And sometimes the government does that. They just make up things is the end of my story. <laughs> Do you have any personal authority? <laughs> yeah, he's like, what are you talking about? Can you describe where this comes from? Yeah. Sorry about the long story, everybody. And then in response to what you're saying about the purpose of briefing, this is an example of legal fiction. The So the idea behind submitting everything in briefing is, like you said, out of fairness to the other side, putting all of your cards out on the table so that they can put their best argument forward. Mm-hmm. And then from there, it's supposed to be a closed universe, right? Mm-hmm. But I was listening to the Stanford Law Podcast recently where they were talking about how there's been some controversy about, for example, like who SCOTUS clerks follow on Twitter, because mm-hmm. especially in the age of blogging, mm-hmm. just a lot of people can have influence in the legal discourse. Mm-hmm. And there's talk about do people need to disclose if they follow like above the law or if they follow mm-hmm. like the Federalist mm-hmm. blog or... Mm-hmm. Does there need to be more honesty in terms of all the sources that are considered? Mm. I don't know. That's a tough question. I kind of feel like that's, to me, I think that's the, yeah, that's a hard one. I think that's hard because it's also getting in, like, regulating some conduct that I think everybody should be free to do. And, like, I think it's another legal yeah. fiction to be, like, everyone's completely independent because obviously they're not. And yeah, <laughs> they're political yeah exactly. And... And like, that's like the stakes we know when we're electing people. I think the jig is up on this. And I think it's always been up, honestly. Like the Supreme Court has always been political appointees and and that's how they're picking their clerks. But yeah, I think that the even though the briefing is supposed to be a closed universe and even if you are reading like one of these blogs, you still have to like cite authority that has like come yeah, from the yeah. Yeah, So that I have, I have to say like, even in, in front of like the immigration judges, um, so this is just, this is not at the federal court level, but in front of immigration court, um, there's a duty for all attorneys. So it's like 
a model ethical code we have, and it's called Candor to the Tribunal. And this mm-hmm. covers things like we have to cite good law. So we have to cite mm-hmm. law that is still applicable and hasn't been overturned. Mm-hmm. And if we know about a case that is directly contradictory to the argument that we're bringing up, we have to cite that case and we have to say mm-hmm. like, hey, I do know about this other case that says that I'm wrong, but here's why my case is different. Or mm-hmm. here's why that case was wrong. So you have to grapple with it at some point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I have um, trial attorneys in front of the immigration judges who are ignoring like law that we're binded by, who are wow. ignoring circuit law that we're binded by, and they're citing mm-hmm. laws from other circuits, but not grappling with, hey, wow. the circuit says this, but let's do the fifth circuit law or something. They're not even doing that. Yeah. Lying about yeah. the facts. So, so yeah, it's like it, it is really frustrating when you're... So I'm really, I, I felt that attorney when he brought up that, like, this is weird. They haven't brought this up at all before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I know. ICE trial attorneys are so used to just needing to prove their cases before judges who want to deny legal relief and before people who are unrepresented that they're just sloppy when they're actually going before a person who's represented. Yeah. 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 Like we were talking about earlier with in terms of how judges can interpret the statute, the attorney for the respondent just said that it's pretty clear that Congress meant to ban encouragement and that that's speech. And your role as the judiciary is to step in and be like, this thing that Congress tried to do is unconstitutional and we're striking it down. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was good that Breyer suggested that. Yeah, no, I think that was good. And yeah, and so that goes back to the first issue that we were talking about when something, when you've like tried to analyze it and every way that it looks like in text and none of those ways um, can be constitutional, then you're not, judges are not supposed to rewrite it. They're supposed to strike it down. Mm-hmm. And Congress is the one that's supposed to rewrite it if they like meant something different that was constitutional to ban. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the attorney also said that This case was the same as an issue, an ordinance in Cincinnati where the statute prohibited, quote, annoying conduct. (laughs) And uh, in that case, they actually didn't even get into what the person was doing (laughs) because it was really unclear on the record what the individual had done. But the court struck it down anyway because of the overbreadth of what it could criminalize. And Mm -hmm. yeah, and I thought that was a really good analogy. Yeah. And yeah, I think it is. And I didn't get to see the end of this case, but when I was working in New York, we were bringing up some of those because there was townships in Long Island that were criminalizing, trying to criminalize homeless people that were like putting things. And that is very speech too oriented Mm -hmm. and can be overbroad. So, so yeah, we were trying to, so this does come up honestly in different ways. And so I thought it was good that he pointed that out too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've thought a lot about how this administration is trying to criminalize solidarity a lot. <laughs> really, the criminalization of humanitarian aid volunteers mm-hmm. and with this provision being used, being talked about as potentially prosecuting attorneys who do know your rights presentations at the border. Mm-hmm. It, it's or, or even how, how far it's been taken already with somebody hiring somebody who's undocumented and encouraging them to stay yeah. is is that issue and it's yeah it's criminalizing solidarity yeah 
Yeah, and Briar, Briar, I think, did this, and they called it the parade of horribles when they talk about it. But yeah. Briar was talking about universities, church groups, landladies, you name it. Mm-hmm. And then he said, sanctuary cities. And then he, like, didn't want to go there, so I started laughing <laughs> because he just, like, kind of, like, trailed off. But yeah, um, <laughs> but he said that they talked about in the briefing, in the briefing, the respondent's attorney talked about all of this. And I don't think the government's attorney did actually say that, oh, no, we wouldn't criminalize any of these groups. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess in conclusion, I'd say that I'm also cautiously optimistic, but I'm a bit scared about how narrowly they're going to limit the statute. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. versus just saying it's unconstitutional on space. I hope that's what happens, but I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, there's cautious optimism that nobody agrees that it's constitutional as written right yeah. now. So yeah, let's see what happens, how they narrowly construct this. And I, I think they have to send it back if they do that. I don't I don't really see a way around that. Yeah. When I say send it back, yeah. Remand I it? I say, yeah, exactly. <laughs> mm. <laughs> okay, well... Oh. Thank you, Jehan, for coming back onto the podcast and talking about Snedding Smith for an hour. Again, I feel like everybody's going to be so well briefed on this case. <laughs> so thank you so much, especially because it's a Sunday and yeah, you could be chilling. So thank you for talking about the First Amendment. <laughs> yeah, thanks for, thanks for having me back. Um, I hope everybody stays safe and safe and healthy out there. Yeah, same. Okay, bye everyone. Bye.